Welcome to The Aggregate, hosted by Kinetic Ventures. This is a project based on the learnings from Startup DNA and the founder's journey. On today's episode, we talk with Gavi Begtrup, CEO of Ekrine Systems, as he shares his journey and learnings. I found his pivot from startups to politics, where he may be the next mayor of Cincinnati, fascinating. Gavi? Hi. Hi. Good morning. I'm really glad to have you here and be talking to you today. Um, and welcome to this is literally Kinetic's first ever podcast where we hope to, um, you know, explore a bunch of ideas from both the investor perspective and the entrepreneur perspective. So uh, welcome. I'm really glad you're here. Awesome. I'm uh, honored to be the first one on the list. So, you know, we had some some emails going back and forth when we were talking about doing this. And I think it would be interesting just to kind of level set to you know, to the audience. Why in the world did you agree to do this anyways? <laughs> uh, well, you know, I think, Brad, you and I have known each other for a better part of a decade. And we've been on both sides of the river here in Cincinnati and in Covington and working on the startup, the startup scene, and you and I have been on opposite sides of it, right? You as an investor, uh, you know, yeah. and we'll get to this, I'm sure, but not an investor in my first company, you turned me down, but an investor in my <laughs> second company. And, uh, and I think we've had the opportunity between the two of us to see the startup community in Cincinnati really blossom. And so I thought it'd be a lot of fun to, 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 you know, talk to you about both sides of that equation. Yeah, I, I agree. And and one of the things that that I hope is a lot of the podcasts that I've listened to, not just in, you know, Startup Cincinnati or the Midwest is, you know, it's really about um, self, you know, grandizing, you know, yeah. a a person or a a a company. And, you know, what I hope we do today, I'm not really here to talk about my company, we may talk a little bit about your company and your journey, but just the exploration of ideas um, that we may not agree on. I hope we don't, frankly, on some of them just to get some perspectives. Yeah. Well, I, I totally agree with you. I One of the things that drives me crazy in the startup world is that uh, the media like to cover uh, only the unicorns as these fairy tale stories, right? And so you read all these all these articles online or whatever, and they talk about how, you know, and then the 11th hour, the $100 million check showed up, and that's when I knew we were saved. And it's like, well, that's not what most startups are about, right? And so it gives us really false sense of what, you know, running a startup is, is like. Um, so I'm happy to get real. I think you bring up a, a, a good point is, you know, I think from the investor perspective, honestly, and there's there's two types of investors in startup land in the sense that there's those of us that are participating currently and then there are those that are on the sideline and to build upon what you just said you know it's my perspective that I think a lot of the investors believe that the startup ecosystem is not an authentic ecosystem i mean <laughs> what do you, you what do you feel like uh, well, what do you mean by not authentic that it's, you know, there's a lot of, you know, um, 
you know, different um, in this company raises money and this company raises money. And it's sort of a confusing business model. Right. And I think it's difficult for some investors to understand, you know, hey, that's not the success that that's not what looks like success to me. And I'm just wondering, yeah. you know, how is do you think there's a disconnect between what entrepreneurs believe is a successful company versus what investors might believe is a successful yeah. company? Yeah, right. So, you know, I, I do a lot of consulting with early stage companies. And this is something I talk about a lot, which is there's there's the venture backable, you know, hockey stick, you know, growth, growth, growth companies. And then there's more organic growth, you know, traditional small businesses. And one's not better than the other, but uh, they're very different paths. And one of the challenges we have in the in the greater Cincinnati region um, is that uh, in the investors in particular, like especially a lot of early stage investors, are used to investing in slow growth companies, right? Which is great. They Most of them have made their money over decades in great industries uh, where they had they, they were profitable early and just grew and grew and grew organically. And uh, they're not used to the high risk, high reward uh, approach on startups. And that, that approach isn't bad or wrong. It's just different. And so certainly one of the things we ran into a lot was the disconnect between uh, investors' personal experiences here in the region um, versus w- what's going on in the venture, venture backable startup world. Uh, and, and to your point on how we think about valuations, um, you know, I, I believe in marketplaces, right? And the hard thing in startups is that until a company goes public or is sold, uh, the valuation is kind of a paper money issue, right? Like, what does it really yeah. mean? And and that's really uncomfortable when a company has, you know, no revenue or has low revenue compared to how much money it's burning. And says it's a hundred million dollar company or five hundred million dollar company. Um, what I will say is that some of those prove out, right? I mean, if you go public, you sure. can no longer really argue about it. If somebody buys it, you, you know, it's it's what the market bears. Uh, the hard thing is, I think this acceptance and tolerance of risk, right? So you're a portfolio investor, and you know that not all of them are gonna are gonna make it at all. And I think the weird thing in startups is coming to to terms come to really to terms with the fact that you know it's not it, it there's not a normal distribution of 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 outcomes right there's not a some make that you know some right. do really well some do okay some do great some don't make it it really is you know they kind of either do really well or we kill them and that's 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 hard uh for, for a lot of people to wrap their heads around uh yeah, I really like this topic and in particular because the, the two of us are you know, on the phone, me being a portfolio investor, and you, you let in early that we've known each other for the better part of a decade, and I, I turned you down on, on your um, <laughs> first deal, and, and I did fund the second deal, but why don't you, you, know, you kind of talk about how that, how that turned out for you, yeah, absolutely. how it turned out for me, yeah. and um, maybe some nuggets. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So the funny thing here is I, you know, we met on my first company. It was an agriculture materials company. It was early stage. Um, we had a team of three people. We had hired a fourth person. Um, and we we raised some money. We got some grant money. We got some money from the state of Kentucky. That company was actually in Covington. 
Um, and I was, I, I live in Cincinnati, right? And I was yeah. going back and forth, uh, which is actually something I just want to point out to people that driving across to Kentucky and back is not a big deal. <laughs> Come on now. It's, it's a huge deal. <laughs> I know. They don't check your passport. You know, there's no, uh, anyway. So, uh, yeah. So we built this company and, it was a great example. I learned a lot from that company. It's funny because the company was ultimately unsuccessful. We we were developing a technology to try and revolutionize uh, protecting agriculture, meaning uh, greenhouses and hoop houses. And really, it was a light-changing a light technology that basically programmed plants to be more productive. And it was really cool. It had great science. Wave Tech? Or what I was, was called, that called Wave Tech. And, yeah, uh, look at my memory. Yeah, there you go. Good job. Um, I, uh, it's funny. Names are so hard, right? So you have to name this podcast and good luck with that. But like <laughs> wave tech, I always thought like, I don't know. It just sounds like a surfing company, right? <laughs> but, yeah. um, but the idea was light waves. And the whole idea was that you can actually take, take the sun's light and you can shift it so that it hits exactly the right spectrum to make a tomato plant produce beautiful tomatoes. And that's real. It's good science. We made this great filter technology. We got $150,000, actually $180,000 from the National Science Foundation. We got money from uh, the state of Kentucky in a matching grant. We raised some private dollars. Um, and what we did was prove that the technology worked uh, and it could be manufactured. We worked with a manufacturer in Louisville who is really wonderful. Um, and we proved that although you could manufacture it, the price point for manufacturing was about a thousand X away from where it needed to be for that product to make money. And so as a, as a scientist, as a PhD, you know, I had led with the technology uh, and, and luckily we were smart. I mean, we spent all of our efforts, you know, proving it worked and, and testing this question on the, on the manufacturing. But as soon as we showed that you just couldn't build the technology at a price point that you can make money at, um, you know, we looked at other, other options, looked at other markets. And we said, okay, this isn't going to go. And so we ran that company for about a year and a half, um, did something really cool, but, but you know, ultimately shut it down. And what's funny is, you know, that was not a great feeling. <laughs> you know, shutting down sure. a company is not a great feeling. You know, we'd spent, we'd spent the better part of two years working on it. Um, and, uh, but, you know, my investors in the next company, which we'll talk about here in a moment, actually complimented me on that. You know, I remember one of our major investors who who ended up coming in over and over and over again. I remember when I was first talking to him and telling him the story of WaveTech, he said, you know, it, it takes a lot of um it takes a lot of guts and and brains to to be willing to say, hey, you know, let's we're not going to move this thing forward. This isn't going to go. And we ended up returning some money to our investors. Um, you know, so it wasn't a total loss. Actually, people turned out okay on it. Um, but you know, that it was, again, we're trying to do something big. If we can't do something big, that's not, that's not where all of us are in for. But I remember when you invest in the next company in Ekron, uh, I remember a few years ago, we were, you and I were at a kinetic holiday party or something. And I asked you, I said, you know, Brad, you didn't invest in my company the first time. Uh, <laughs> but now you're investing in this. What's that all about? Do you remember what you told me? Oh, no, but I can't wait to hear it. So you said, Gabby, was I was I drinking? By the way, yeah, 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 right. So you know, I always, you know, when I want the truth out of people, I, I get them a couple more drinks. Um, yep. So you, what you said, which I, I, which you know, it's hard as a as a as a uh, CEO of a startup 
you're constantly asking for money and people are telling you no, right? It doesn't matter who you are, yes. matter, you know, most people are going to tell you no. And for anyone who's never been through that, you know, my sister's an actress and she talks about this all the time. It's like, until you're an A-lister, you know, most auditions are a no and it's hard. Uh, it's a lot of rejection. And so, you know, I, it, it's hard when people are telling you no. And so I asked you about this. Well, you invested in my second company, not my first company. And what you said was, you said, Gavi, uh, when I met you, I knew I wanted to invest in you, but I didn't want to invest in that company. I, re- I remember sitting across from you on the table. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you left, I remember thinking, man, I do not like that company. I wish I could put that guy um, ahead of something else. And so you're right. I, I totally remember that. So I did invest <laughs> in your second company. Yeah. Yeah. And how'd that go for us? Um, well, uh, I, it wasn't the return you were looking for. So, um, so the second company called Ekron Systems, and um, I, you know, I, I we're still in the process of selling off the the IP from it, so I can't talk about the final stage of it. But um, you know, so that's a company that I was working with Cincy Tech at the time. Uh, I had done a lot of work with their technology companies, their biotech companies, materials companies, working with the University of Cincinnati, and working with with children's and I was on their life sciences portfolio. And we decided to found this company called Ekron Systems, which came out of uh, a professor, Jason Heikenfeld of the University of Cincinnati and the Air Force Research Lab. And it was a really cool idea. The idea was to use sweat as a replacement for blood for medical diagnostics. So th- there are these chemicals that are in your blood that you know a physician will order a test, they'll draw blood, they'll send it off and they'll measure all these levels. And we were doing the same thing, but in sweat. So you didn't have to have a needle. You didn't have to draw blood. You could. The idea was that you put a device on your body and it would collect sweat in real time and use chemical sensors to figure out uh, you, you know, these health indicators, these biomarkers. And that's an amazing idea. It's still an amazing idea. And we built that company from nothing to over 50 people in Cincinnati, uh, brought in uh, over $30 million of investment predominantly from the private sector, including, but also including something like $6 million of, of federal money from the Department of Defense and, and other agencies. Um, and we led the world in this new diagnostic field, right? We, we had this idea of turning sweat into something that could, you know, change medical diagnostics. Like imagine if, you know, instead of having to draw blood or even now today with the COVID, instead of having to shove something up your nose, if we could stick a device on you that was painless and collect enough sweat to, to measure, uh, you know, these signs of infection or stress or, um, you know, kidney function or whatever else. And this was a really personal issue to me. Uh, and I'll tell you, one of my best friends that I've known for 20 years uh, was struck with uh, kidney disease, advanced kidney disease, very early in his life, in his, uh, in his forties. And, uh, I watched over the course of this company, over the course of Akron, I would talk to my friend and he was um, he was getting worse and worse and worse and moving towards dialysis and getting, you know, getting home dialysis, having to get, you know, a, a, a port put in. Um, and the amazing thing is that there is a marker in sweat. Um, one of the things that happens when your kidneys start shutting down is that you start uh, producing a lot of urea that comes out in your sweat. It causes this frost and you'll see this in advanced kidney disease patients where they'll have kind of, it'll look like they have crystallized, they do have crystallized sweat all over. Um, and so you can actually, one indicator of kidney function is through, 
through that biomarker. And so that, that wasn't where we were starting, but part of what got me so excited about this idea was if we could manage his dialysis and manage his disease without having to draw blood, um, you know, if we could just spread out the, the dialysis, so it was every three weeks instead of every two weeks by doing real-time feedback, you know, that'd be a big deal for him. And I will tell you, uh, you know, 2020 has been a hard year. 2021 has been a rough start. But on January 5th of 2021, my friend actually got a kidney transplant. And so, uh, you know, I, this was something that, that I was thinking about throughout this entire company. And uh, now he's back on the road towards a, a healthy, normal life. All right. So back to Ephraim. Um, I just want to share that little story because it's things, great. it's things like that that keep you going when when startups are hard. So we we ran Ekron, um and we're the leaders in the world in this field. Um, uh, absolutely, you had something like 70 patents, raised a lot of money, invested a lot in the city of Cincinnati. And I will also say, you know, we were able to, people told us we wouldn't be able to recruit people because people wouldn't want to move to Cincinnati. But it wasn't true. We had people move from Texas, from New Jersey, from Utah, from obviously from Kentucky and Indiana and Illinois. But all of the country, people were moving to Cincinnati to work at this company uh, because it was a great opportunity. And because as soon as they came to Cincinnati and uh, and and saw what it was like and saw you know how beautiful the city is and the you know low cost of living, easy transportation, all those sorts of things, uh, they were they were okay with it and they moved here. And 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 we you know one of the challenges in the startup ecosystem is that there aren't a lot of people who have worked in a startup. And working in a startup is very different than working in a Fortune 500. Right. Right. And on. so finding talent was we had to either recruit it or build it. So we recruited a lot of people from all over the country, but we also trained a lot of people. We had a lot of people out of uh, UC, Xavier, NKU, uh, you know, Dayton, Wright State, uh, and 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 we had a lot of college interns that co-ops that we trained as well. So we ended up training nearly a hundred people who uh, you know are now post Ekron are uh, are working at startups. Some of them are executives of startups. Some of them started their own companies in the region. So. Uh, it's had a wonderful impact in that respect. But what I haven't said yet, of course, is that Ekron did not have a billion dollar exit. So this was a company that we, you know, we believed could change the face of healthcare. Um, but the path kept getting longer as we moved into um, as we moved into the medical space. Originally, we started in athletics and military training. As we moved into the medical space, you know, the timelines there are longer. We're working in a new regulatory space that the FDA wasn't uh, didn't have regulations on, so we're going to have to build a whole new regulatory regime, um, and and uh, and adoption was going to be really hard. And frankly, we were leading in the technology, but the technology still had a ways to go before it was robust enough to be on people measuring things in real time. And then you know, so we were working with all that as you as you know, uh, having been right alongside us the whole way. We went through some changes. We um, we, we tried to reposition, uh, tried to do the pivot. Um, and then we were raising our, 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 our series C round. We had raised about $30 million today. We we're out raising another $30 million uh, at the beginning of 2020. And, um, we had kind of repositioned to be able to, you know, lean in hard into this medical space and the timing really just got terrible. Um, I was going coast to coast, uh, doing the venture dance, talking to VCs um, in January, February, March, went to the JP Morgan conference, met with hundreds of people. Uh, and then at the end of March, when travel shut down, um, 
when uh, all my meetings started getting canceled and I can no longer go to Silicon Valley to make these to meet with people. Uh, the other thing that happened and what we saw in the venture world is that uh, a lot of the VC firms at the scale that we were talking about uh, started uh, pulling back and focusing on their portfolio companies. So money became hard to come by and we ended up in a position where we really couldn't continue. So we've been in the process of of winding down that company and selling off the IP, which which is ongoing. Yeah. So if I was to, you know, use a, a harsher word, I mean, from a financial <laughs> standpoint, we'd call it a failure, right? Yeah. And, and Ekrines, it's an interesting topic. I'd like your perspective. I mean, y- you failed financially. You know, the investors that supported you were alongside her. Um, you know, you lost their money. But two yeah. things: one, you're still in. You're still in Cincinnati with your head held high, and we're still talking. You know, I've seen quite a few. You know, we've invested in over a hundred. You know, portfolio companies. Uh, done a lot of personal investing, and I find the the failure path because it's inevitable part of a startup ecosystem, and and what you want is to get these entrepreneurs reinvested. But I've seen in Cincinnati over the last couple of years, you know, failure's sort of been like um, out with a kind of a whimper and, hey, don't say anything. And I've seen entrepreneurs leave the city. And but you're all, you know, failure, for lack of a better word, was a little more fantastical. Yet the sun is still up. I mean, like, what's your perspective on that? Yeah, well, I appreciate you saying that, you know, um, there's a lot of different types of failure and the the bad failures are when you do things wrong, you screw up, you're, you're not listening, you're not paying attention, you're not working hard, all those sorts of things. The good failures are you went at bat, tried to hit a home run, you were the right person at the right time and you took the swing and sometimes you strike out. And I think we accept in the venture community, we accept that that's how it goes, that we're trying to the, the, the shame with Ekron was that we were trying to build a billion-dollar company, right? That's what we were aiming at. And, um, and at some point, as you know, in the venture world, you get in a position where that's the only option, as a billion dollars are out. And, um, you know, I've written about this. I have a column in an in Inc. magazine where I talk about failure and talk about the fact that, you know, you can do everything right. And I don't pretend we did everything right, you know. Uh, but you can do things right. You can make good decisions. You can fight hard. And sometimes you don't win. Right. I mean, we still love the Bengals, but they don't win all their games. Right. And uh, <laughs> my, poor Kentucky, my poor Kentucky Wildcats, not even they can win this year. Right. Exactly. But, and, I love them. but but there's a difference between a a a failure as an outcome and a failure as a person. Right. And, I, you know, what I've seen is on one hand. um you know, when I wrote this article in Inc. magazine talking about my experience, and it is really a dark love letter to, to entrepreneurship. I talk about how, you know, yes, my company didn't have the outcome I wanted, but, you know, the reason we do these things is because I believe that that companies, and particularly startups in particular, are the best way to bring innovation into the world to improve people's lives. It's why I do it, right? My goal was to change healthcare so that we didn't have to draw blood as much, but actually bigger than that, was that we could get to a point where we had better real-time uh, data about health so that we could intervene earlier and sooner with people and save lives. And when you're talking about an idea that big, you've got to take you, – you're talking about trying to hit a home run. And um, 
And, and so, you know, on one hand, I, I wrote about this. I got some pushback from people locally that said, whoa, 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 why are you talking about this? We don't talk about bad things. We don't talk about failure. We, you you got to hide that. I say, absolutely not, because this is part of the lie of entrepreneurship is you only read the stories about the guys who sold their companies for $400 million. And for every one of those, there's 900 you know, companies that had a lesser or, or bad outcome. And if we keep telling would-be entrepreneurs that don't worry, you know, it's really you just get into it with a good idea, people throw money at you, and then you make a billion dollars, then they're going to fail. They're going to fail even more. We need to tell them, look, what really happens is you get in with a good idea. People support you a little bit slowly. You build it. You change your idea because you're never right the first time. You, you keep growing You keep and you pound it hard. It is the hardest job you'll ever do. It'll be hard for you. It'll be hard for all the people around you. But your investors will see that you worked hard and did everything you could. And if you're lucky, if you're lucky, you'll have a good outcome. And if you're not lucky, you might not have a good outcome, but if you did it right, people will support you again. And, you know, I'm very fortunate that, you know, most of our investors have reached out to me and said, hey, what are you doing next? Right. And how can I help? Right. So on that journey, you know, you mentioned, I think your comment was something to the effect of in the in the venture world, you know, we've come to expect you win some, you lose some. And that's why it's extremely important to have a well-diversified portfolio Sure. And, you know, financial failure is different from, you know, a company behaving badly or, or doing something wrong. I think your story is super interesting to entrepreneurs from a funding standpoint. Number one, you raised $30 million at Ekron in the middle of Nowheresville, Cincinnati. And some <laughs> things that I hear from from founders is there's no money here, you can't raise here. Or my favorite tagline is, well, if I was in California, I'd raise $100 million. And not only did you raise a lot of money um, between your startup number one and startup number two, you had a you had experience with two different states. You had experience with all kinds of different investors. And I think sometimes, especially new entrepreneurs, they just broadly classify everyone as a venture investor. Right. And I, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit just about the different types of money and the types of people and the motivations behind them that you've experienced at your two startups. Yeah, that's that's a great point. And, and I think, you know, the most successful entrepreneurs are the serial entrepreneurs, right? Uh, all of my friends that have had their big exits, it was not their first company, right? We, we may not remember or talk about their first company, but it was not their first company. And it's because it's about building relationships. So, you know, Cincinnati, certainly, uh, and Ohio and the Midwest ha are, are coming along, but there's not nearly as much investment dollars, it, it, investment dollars as there is on the coast. But, you know, the funny thing is, yeah, everybody's got an excuse, right? Yeah, if I were on the West Coast, everybody give me money. If you're on the West Coast, there'd be 100 companies that look just like you, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, believe me, it is just as competitive out there as it is here. Um, to me, you know, we had a lot of different types of investors that came in for different reasons. Uh, both of the companies I've run are are really hard technology or biotech companies. They're not a uh, digital company, so I can't really speak to that. Um, we we always had a team. You know, it starts with the team. That's the thing I learned the most. So my first company was unsuccessful, but I picked up. You know, our our first employee there 
was just an amazing young woman who then came with me to Ekron. Uh, it's all about bringing together the right people. And, you know, investors, I hear this all the time. I, I, I believe it's 100% true. You invest in the team, right? The, you always know always. that. Yeah, you always know that the projections they show you aren't real, right? <laughs> the plan they have will change. Uh, you know all those things. It's do you have a good team going after something that can be big enough and that they have a space to succeed? And so to me, you know, I have always had the fortune of working on companies that were trying to change the world, right? We're trying to improve the world. And so our investors, we've always had a, a number of investors that really bought into that vision, right? Because there's a lot of ways, yeah. you know, once you have money, there's a lot of ways to turn it into more money, right? You can invest in the stock market, you can invest in all these different things. I think in the a lot of people do startups because not because they have the best investment because you know yeah they they can have great returns on a portfolio but because they're excited about being part of something new and what Ekron proved what we were able to show with with my first company WaveTech and with Ekron to a bigger degree was that you can build a a unicorn type company here in Cincinnati or in Kentucky here here in the Midwest. And you can get attention for really great ideas. I mean, we were we were talking about this all over the world. Uh, you know, I was an invited speaker at a at a conference in uh, Germany, you know, several years ago, uh, because the whole world was looking at what the future of, of of healthcare and diagnostics was. And you can you can get that if you're doing something that's truly, uh, truly, you know, innovative and world changing. From the investor perspective, you know, we had all sorts of investors. We had people who, you know, had interacted with us as the founding team um, before and believed in us. Um, we had investors who, you know, were in the startup scene through Cincy Tech. You know, Cincy Tech was a big, a big supporter of ours. Uh, early investor led our rounds. Um, we had, and as we grew, you know, more and more money came that knew less about what we were doing, but knew more about the scale, the outcome we're going to. So the the investment portfolio changes. One of the things I tell every startup, every venture startup here, and uh, and you're right, you know, we use that venture term loosely, but I mean the startups that are going on this path, right, where they're selling equity and trying to grow, grow, grow. I tell every company in this region, yes, you need to be talking to all the players here. Uh, you know, whether that's uh, you know individual angels, you know, QCA, Queen City Angels. Uh, talking both sides of the river, right? Because you invest in companies, you're in Covington, but you invest in companies in Cincinnati, you invest in companies all over the world, right? Shoot, uh, we just did a deal in Idaho of all places. Right. Yeah. Well, Idaho's hot now, and this is actually part of my <laughs> part of my uh, platform these days. But um, my point is, one of the things I tell early stage companies is you have to get out there and get out there early. I, I don't want to hear an excuse about, well, if I were in California, you can be in California, fly out there and go meet right. with people. Uh, there's just no excuse uh, to not be talking. And one of the one of the things we uh, one of the lessons we learned at Ekron was we were able to raise money locally, um, but we should have been out on the coast talking sooner. Yeah. And uh, and that, you know, so when it was time to raise big dollars and we we had, quite frankly, gone beyond what this region, you know, could could lead. Um, we needed coastal or, you know, big, you know, not necessarily coastal Chicago, whatever, but 
uh, we needed the bigger venture players. Uh, and, and we hadn't built those relationships. So I was, I was then, yeah, as I mentioned, running all over the country, trying to build those relationships. And it really is about relationships, whether it's investors or strategic partners. Everybody thinks that a strategic is going to come in and throw huge money. And by strategics, I mean the big companies that partner with you and may someday buy you, whether that's a Procter and Gamble or a, a you know a, a Johnson and Johnson or whoever else in your field. Um, everybody thinks that like the way we tell those stories is just overnight, you know, Johnson and Johnson invests you know six million dollars in some company. The reality is those are things that develop over years. And so the thing I tell everyone is get out there and start talking to people. Get out there. You should be in Silicon Valley. You should be in Boston. You should be in Chicago. You should be talking to investors and getting on their radar. And are they going to tell you no? Yeah, they're going to tell you no. 99% of the people are going to tell you no. But if you, just like you and I, our conversation, if you do a good job, if you're, if you're, if you're honest, open and trusting, right? You know, the the humility, open and trusting is the hot leadership thing I talk about a lot. If you do those, things, then people will, will follow you. And Sequoia might not invest in you today, but they'll want to know what's happening in a couple of years. Totally. So I feel like it just wouldn't be right in this mm. day and age if we didn't take a pivot. And for our, <laughs> our, our last topic, I mean, we got to talk politics, but right. I don't want to talk, you know, federal politics because there's plenty of that on the news. You're taking a personal pivot Gavi, what in the world are you doing and why are you doing this? Uh, right. So I, Gavi Begdrup, am running for mayor of Cincinnati. Uh, and it's a good question. I mean, the the real answer is Cincinnati is this, and the greater region, is this amazing place that I've had the 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 fortune to build my companies in, to invest heavily in, to raise my kids in. Uh, and it's not growing the way other mid-sized cities in the country are. Uh, I have friends all over the country. I, I've lived in California. I've lived on the East Coast. And my friends are leaving the coasts and moving to the middle of the country. But they're moving to uh, Boulder. They're moving to Nashville. As you said, they're moving to Boise, Idaho. And they're moving to Columbus. And uh, so it's not that Ohio is some place people don't want to move. Like, it's that Cincinnati is not on people's map. And it's really disappointing because Cincinnati was once the sixth largest city in the country. It has beautiful architecture, right? People film movies here in Cincinnati because they want it to look like the the beautiful old days of early yeah. New York, right? Our Italianate uh, architecture and everything. We have beautiful architecture. We have beautiful history. Um, you know, we're an old city. When my friends from California visit, they're amazed by, the, you know, they didn't realize there were buildings this old in the in the United States, right? And we have everything going for us. We have great cost of living. We have uh, Fortune 500 companies. We have this burgeoning startup scene. And yet we're not growing. And to me, that's about a lack of vision for growth. And, you know, the Proverbs tell us that where there is no vision, the people perish. And that's something I think is sorely missing in Cincinnati. We do not have a coherent vision for how we grow this region and make it work for everyone. And I think, you know, coming out of the pandemic, you know, my small business, you know, failed in part because of the pandemic and its impact on venture investment in the economy. I think that there are, you know, kind of three groups of people who have been really hit by the pandemic, other than obviously those who have lost loved ones. 
Um, and that's families who have kids in, in schools and are now trying to have spent the better part of the last year managing you know, remote schooling and all of that. And small businesses uh, who are failing left and right. And then, of course, m- you know, our minority and low income communities and particularly, let's be honest, um, minority owned businesses, black owned businesses are shuttering at twice the rate of white owned businesses. And we're losing generations of progress for women in the workplace. You know, I, I don't know if you saw the latest uh, jobs numbers, but, you know, the 140, I think, thousand new unemployment is counted, counted entirely in, in women. So women are leaving the workforce, which is something I predicted a year ago, right? Because they're, they're often the primary caregivers. And right. you know, as the kids are staying home, they have, they're staying home. Um, so we're losing progress and engagement in the workforce. Um, African-American, you know, if you look at women, uh, you, the ones hurt most are, are African-American women, Latino women. Um, and so we, all that's bad, right? But I view, we have this opportunity here in Cincinnati in the coming year to re- recover from the pandemic and build back a city that makes us all proud. And we all love this region. We love the city. And when I say Cincinnati, obviously I'm running for mayor of the city of Cincinnati, but one of the things that have driven me crazy as someone who's, who had a company in uh, Covington, who's worked all over the region, um, has worked with startups all over the region is we're incredibly silent. We're incredibly parochial. We view from city hall views, the city ending, at you know at, at the borders, but the reality is, the region grows and Cincinnati grows. Cincinnati is the beating heart of a two million person economic region, and what's good for Covington is good for Cincinnati. What's good for Norwood, what's good for Blue Ash is good for Cincinnati. And we need to pick up our heads, look at our friends across the river, look at our friends in the surrounding neighborhoods and suburbs, and in the county, and start working together to build a Cincinnati that is is working for everyone and is creating better jobs and opportunities. And you know about all the scandals in Cincinnati. You know that we've been racked by corruption. And, you know, a couple months ago, when when the latest corruption news came out, it became clear that this was not an isolated event, but rather just, you know, how City Hall works. And then I watched all the people getting into the race were all denizens of City Hall. And None of them had leadership experience. None of them had built businesses. None of them had any idea how to make make Cincinnati grow again. And you know, you you know me from the startup world. Uh, you you also know that before I was building companies, I was the policy advisor for Gabrielle Giffords when she was in Congress. I spent three yeah. years, and I've worked on big, complicated issues. Cincinnati has a lot of big, complicated issues between the sewer district and and water and the county. And um, and we're going to be in a hard place where revenues are going to drop uh, due to the economic downturn. And we're going to have to figure out how to do a lot of smart things. And I've spent my career working in complex policy. I'm a physicist by training. As you know, I'm used to really hard problems. And as the as the only businessman in the race, the only person who's created jobs that's, that's brought tens of millions of dollars in investment to the city. Um, but also, frankly, I'll be the first directly elected mayor in Cincinnati who has kids in public school. And wow. now more, yeah, now more than ever, I think that's a big deal because families are hurting. We have 36,000 kids in CPS and 
And I don't think that people in City Hall understand what we're dealing with. And in response to the pandemic, I didn't see smart policy. I didn't see action at City Hall. I didn't see City Hall moving to collaborate with the school district, collaborate with the county, and lessen the burden, lessen the the hit on working families. And I, you know, I've, I, you know, personally been through that. Uh, and I think I'm the right guy to go build the city. You know, it's a, the the family issue and the school issue. You know, that really hits home to me. I have three children all in public school and I spent the better part of my morning yesterday, you know, dealing with some school administrators, just with some, you know, struggling kid issues. And, you know, I know I'm not alone. I know everyone is doing that. Right. So, look, I think you're crazy to get in politics, (laughs) but I'm also excited that an entrepreneur mindset could do something for, as you put it, the beating heart of our city. I wish we had more time to unpack that more, but look, I had a good time talking to you today and I'm not going to hold it against you if you become mayor of Cincinnati, even (laughs) though I live, work and play in Covington. So hopefully we can still be friends on the other side. (laughs) I look forward to it. Thank you so much, Brad. All right. Take care. Bye.